welcome to the Craft Beer Showdown Podcast, where information is king, drinking is mandatory, and the beer is always flowing. Now, let's check in with your hosts and see what's on draft in this session. Welcome to the Craft Beer Showdown, episode 14. I just want to give a quick little foreword here before the show started and just thank everyone for downloading and listening to my show and interacting with me. Um, it, it's really an honor to be able to talk about something I love, uh, help people, and you know make it good enough that people actually want to listen to it. Uh, it surprises me. Uh, since our relaunch, I've had just over 4,000 downloads of the show. Uh, I think that's huge, and just thank you so much. Um, before we get into the show, I did want to mention if uh, any of the things we mentioned in this show you wanted to see, if you go to craftbeeracademy.com slash session14, session14, uh, all the links and information will be there uh, to kind of give a little more information about the show, because we do go into a lot of information in this one with Andy. Um, if you're interested in joining the Rare Beer Club, where you get two rare beers every month. Uh, we mentioned that a little while ago in the show and sampled a couple, uh, a good McKellar and uh, a couple other beers. Uh, you can go to craftbeeracademy.com slash rare-beer-club to sign up and join, when you'll get two bottles of beer mailed out to you every month, two nice big rare bottles. Uh, lastly, if you want to check out the video of this show, or watch the next show live. It's craftbeeracademy.com slash live dash show. That's where we live stream, and you can also check us out on our YouTube channel. The links for that will be in the show notes. So once again, thank you very much for listening. Uh, thanks for downloading. It's really an honor to be able to talk to you, and enjoy the show. Cheers. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Craft Beer Showdown. This is episode number 14. Uh, for holy baby Jeebus. yeah that's pretty crazy um so this episode uh was actually supposed to happen last week and we're supposed to talk with matt allen of voodoo brewery but some horrible crazy technical stuff happened and had to kind of cancel that um so we'll be talking to him in a later episode uh tonight i wanted to change the topic instead of voodoo brewery and talk all about home brewing and I thought of one of the first people I thought of when I wanted to talk about it was my good friend, Andy. So Mind you, not the that? first person, just one of the first people. Well, of course I thought and of a myself. a group of several. Exactly. <laughs> and as always is the wonderful Amanda. Say hello, Amanda. Hello, guys. Uh, so normally the shows, we start talking about some beer news and some other things that go on in the industry. I didn't really want to do that this time. Um, rather, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, the topic, just go right into the topic. So the the topic for tonight is homebrewing and how to be a better homebrewer. Uh, and I've brewed with Andy before, and he's taught me some pretty amazing stuff. So uh, that's why you're here, Andy. Surprise. I'm shocked. <sighs> Usually I teach people really bad things like murder, you know, stuff like that, but... It's good to know that I taught you something about brewing. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, while you're while you're boiling, you gotta hide the body somewhere. That's true. In the beer. Usually, it's mostly human flesh, not malt. Common misconception with brewing. Yeah. We, you know, there's enough residual sugar and flesh uh, to turn that into alcohol. 
Yep. The enzymes convert the uh, the blood cells, and it makes beer. It's magic. That sounds wow. Good. This this took a, a weird turn. Sorry. I don't know if this is great having Andy on or the worst. Probably <laughs> the worst. Um. Okay. So, like I said, I want to talk about homebrewing and kind of the the ways to go from doing like the stovetop brewing and you know doing the all extract to doing some small grain and then into having a, you know, like I've called it before, the semi-pro kind of setup where, you know, you, you actually have things programmed and timed and, you know, you can do things like step mashes and, you know, more than I can do with my single boil pot. Uh, so I guess before we get started, Andy, um, get a little bit about you. Like, how'd you start brewing? Um, you know, how long have you been brewing? Uh, what are you brewing now? All that. Um, well, I started brewing on January 28th of 2010. Yes, I know the exact day. How do you know um, the exact date? Yeah, um, um, I don't know. It's when everything had started. So uh, I've been brewing for just over three years now, I guess. And uh, it kind of started, my dad was a home brewer before, so I was always around it. My brother was a craft beer drinker, so was my father. So it's kind of how I got into it. Um, I was roommates with a kid who brewed a beer for his college graduation and I was drinking it and it was like a Shakespeare stout clone. I was like, this is the best beer I've ever had in my life. And that's when I figured, you know, I'll give it a try and uh, tried that and started uh, brewing. And from there, you know, it's been an obsession. I probably brewed over 200 batches, started out, you know, extract and am now all grain to the point where I have a walk-in cooler and an automated system uh, it's a Herms, um, so I've just uh, gone crazy with it, and I probably brew at least twice a week um, if I can do that and manage that if nothing else is in the way. And that's so, on top of a full-time job. <laughs> on top of a full-time job, yeah. I have no life. <laughs> so the first question I thought of when you told me how much you brewed was, what do you do with all that beer? Um, I give it away. Um, I go to any Pittsburgh event that I can give away free beer and I give it away uh, for a wedding that we're going to this weekend that I think you're probably both attending. Yeah, we'll be um, there. <laughs> yeah, I, I will have probably eight kegs of, uh, of homebrew there. Um, some that I brew specifically for the wedding. I'm sorry? Is that, are we allowed to ask what you've made? Uh, yeah. Um, uh, Chris Malmberg, the, the guy who's getting married, uh, really loves, uh, uh, what is it, St. Bernardus Ave 12. So I kind of did like a session version of that. Wow. Um, so it's not super big. It's something that you could, you know, drink. It's still a little bit heavy on the alcohol side. It's not a session beer per se, but I have that. I brewed a pale ale that will be accessible. And then from the big pour, I have a bunch of kegs that are left over. So I have like a pumpkin beer, a mild, and a bunch of other stuff. So should be a good time. I'll have a beer left over. I, I don't know. I have no idea. It was only on for an hour. And this year we had nine beers on tap. Okay. Uh, every hour compared to four or five or six, what we had in previous years. So there's a lot more selection. So I think that might be part of it. Um, usually it kicked really quickly, but I'm kind of happy to save some and share it at the wedding. And I think it'll be a good time. I have a jockey box with six taps. So um, it'll be six beers on at all times. It'll be a good time. That's probably the most beer centric wedding I've ever heard of or been to. Well, I mean, he's going to ask me. It's his big day. It's a day he's going to remember for the rest of his life. I don't want the beer to be, you know, crappy and be an afterthought. 
Um, I want to add to his, you know, probably the most important day of his life, I would imagine. So I, I felt I should bring it just as heavy as I bring it to a beer festival. That's well said. Yeah, and I appreciate you knocking the alcohol down of that uh, clone a little bit so that we can all function by the end of the night. And so that's yeah, there'll be a pale ale too and some other things. I'll have a mild, so it won't be all all big beers. Yeah, I have to drive home, so I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Um, okay, so you mentioned that you started with um, Extract. Um, how happy were you with Extract? Like, do you think Extract gives a kind of an okay finished product, or do you think it's just everyone should go to all grain as quick as possible? Um, I think Extract, you can definitely um, make a great beer with that. Um, I don't think it's what some people chalk it up to be is kind of like secondary brewing. You don't make very good beer. Just when you start out, you really don't know all the ins and outs of brewing, and you make a lot of mistakes. Uh, I certainly made a ton of them. So I don't think it's nearly as bad as everyone says. I don't think you can really brew to a specific style because you're kind of brewing with ingredients like extract. It's already preset what the fermentability is going to be, the flavor profile that you're going to get from it. There's not much you can do to alter that. So you kind of have to work within those confines. So if you're trying to brew something that's a BJCP style, you're going to have some trouble, but it's not to say that you can't do that. Uh, just certain styles are going to be a lot more difficult to adapt to it. But overall, I mean, it's all fermentation. If you have a solid fermentation, you're going to have a great product at the end. So, um, you know, a lot of people can't do it. You know, I live in an apartment. I'm fortunate enough that I can brew at my parents' house in the basement because here I couldn't do all grain. I, I would have to do extract. And, you know, some people are in similar circumstances, and I don't think it's a bad thing. Get in the hobby, brew. It's a lot of fun, and you get to drink what you do at the end, even if it's awful. So uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with extract. Yeah, like they say, you know, uh, terrible beer, you made yourselves better, no beer at all. Exactly. Um, so you mentioned um, the, the Herm system, and honestly, the only reason I'm even aware of what that is is because you explained it to me. Uh, I mean, after research, I, I know it's not the, you know, it's not a, an Andy-specific system, obviously, but um, can you kind of explain a little bit what that does and what, what it means to a home brewer? Yeah, certainly. Um so, I mean, with all grain brewing, which I do, um, you basically, you take barley, you crush it up, you put it in uh, water that is a specific temperature, and the barley will be attacked by enzymes, essentially, and will convert the starches to sugars. So, in the event that I have a system, you know, normally you can just let it sit. It's really not a problem whatsoever. Uh, but with a Herm system, what you do is you take the, the wort that you get out of that barley water mixture, recirculate it through a coil, which is inside what's called a hot liquor tank, which has really hot water. And it does a heat exchange. So it can raise temperature or you can continuously recirculate and keep a very consistent temperature. Or in certain beers, you might need to do a step mash to get certain profiles in terms of body and flavor from certain grains, and you, that gives you the opportunity to do that a lot better than just mashing in a core, which works great regardless. It's basically just a more complex, like, production-style smaller setup. Yeah, essentially it's it's pretty much exactly the same. It's just on a much smaller scale. It's right. just all converted, you know, 15-and-a-half-gallon kegs, and that's what I use to operate. So it's just a professional brewery on a much smaller scale. Cool. Okay, so um, so you said you use the uh, the kegs. 
Um, can you just explain kind of what your setup is a little bit more? So, uh, I mean, I've seen it, so I kind of know, and it seems to follow a pretty standard homebrew kind of you know system and setup. But you know, for for those viewing at home, uh, what's what, what's a rough you know lowdown of it? So um, it, it's really evolved. I mean, initially it started with two tiers, and it was gravity fed. So the hot liquor tank was up higher than where my mash tun was, and I boiled on the same burner that I used for my mash tun. Um, that's how it started. And then it evolved to, you know, I still have the gravity fed tier, which can operate off a pump. I now have two pumps on the system. I think when you were around, I only had one at the time. I really don't use the other pump, but it's there as a backup in case I need it. Um, and basically I have the hot liquor tank, that gravity feeds the sparge water, which rinses the grain and gets the residual sugar out to give you the final amount that you're going to end up boiling with. Um, and it's all temperature controlled. So I have probes that I have plugged into each of the kegs, which are just cut off at the top. And, you know, some have braids in them. Others just have a false bottom, which is essentially a screen with holes that allows, that's for my mash tun, allows the wort to get through so I can transfer it to a boil kettle. Um, and I basically have that with the temperature probes. I have a central uh, temperature programmer where I can set a temperature where if my mash drops below a certain uh, degree Fahrenheit, then it'll recirculate, bring it up to that temperature to keep it consistent. Um, and then also to measure what my sparge is, what my boil is in terms of temperature, because that's very important as well. Um, and that's pretty much it. Uh, it's not very complicated. It might seem like it. Uh, it's not very expensive. It might seem like it, it's it's a pretty straightforward system. Okay, so basically it's the, the three kegs, uh, one for mashing, uh, the hot liquor, which if no one's heard that before, is uh, just hot water, not really liquor. Yep. But it's what you use to boil the water that you're going to use later. Uh, and then your actual boil kettle, so just the those three and everything kind of controls them. Um, and you, you still use propane, right? Yeah, I use propane in a, a basement, which is everyone talks about how dangerous it is. Um, I don't recommend you try it at home. Um, I do have a ventilation system that you know takes all the bad stuff out, puts it outside. I have a, it's right next to a door, so um, people say it's dangerous. I don't recommend it, but uh, you know over 200 batches, and I haven't burned off any fingers or limbs to this point, so that's good. See, you know, I, I tried doing that in my basement, and it. I, I had a horrible, horrible experience with it where it just filled – it started to fill the whole house with propane fumes. And I'm going to blame part of that on my burner. Um, I, I don't think it was burning with as high of an efficiency as it should, but, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that can that can certainly be it. And I mean, that happens from time to time. I've installed some new burners recently that have had some problems um, where I just didn't, you know – everything wasn't sealed correctly. So things needed tightened or Teflon tape. Um, you know, there's still some residual smell, especially if I really crank up and I'm trying to do a hard boil. Uh, but with the, the ventilation that I have, uh, it seems to work out. I haven't passed out yet as well. So that's also a plus. At least that you remember, right? Uh, that I remember. Yeah. Um, cool. So what is, um, I know this is kind of, I hate when someone asks me what my favorite beer to drink is or favorite style, but, do you have a favorite style to, to brew? A favorite style to brew is probably an IPA. Um, it's, I know, cliche and probably overdone. Uh, but, you know, that's the first beer that I ever brewed. And for a really long time, it was something that I was continually chasing, trying to figure out how do I make a great West Coast IPA. 
Um, you know, anytime I would try it, it would just never be anywhere uh, near that. So I brew IPAs all the time, preferably session IPAs, uh, lower in alcohol, because that's something that I like to drink. So uh, that by far is my favorite style to brew um, just because it's I'm always looking to improve it and make it better. You know what? I'd have to agree with you. I so far, I mean, I haven't obviously brewed nearly as much as you, but um, with it being so prevalent and such a popular style, I think that makes a really good one stand out even better. So I agree with you totally. Um, you know, when you actually make a amazingly solid IPA, it's almost more rewarding than, you know, making an amazing stout or something like that because there just isn't as much to compare it to in the, you know, the regular craft beer world. Andy, did you start clone or have, is this a original recipe or is it something that's kind of like a mix of things? Um, the recipe that I work with is kind of, I started off, the first one I ever brewed was from um, The Complete Joy of Homebrewing mm -hmm. by Charlie Papazian. Uh, and it turned out terrible. Um, so I kind of strayed away from that immediately. I picked up Brewing Classic Styles, which is just basically a book with award-running uh, recipes from two really reputable homebrewers. And I kind of build upon that. But, you know, anytime that you pick up any kind of homebrewing magazine, there's always input on, you know, making IPAs or what you can do to make them more hoppy. So I kind of just took things from that. Um, and basically, I just late hop a lot. So now at this point, it's all my own recipe. The grain is always a set regiment. Mm -hmm. I never vary or differ from the grain bill. But the hop scheduling and the way that I add the hops is always continually changing because I'm trying to make a, a better beer. Um, I brewed an IPA in 2012 and entered it in competition uh, here for Trash, the local homebrew club that I'm a part of. It won gold. I lost the recipe. I have no oh. idea what that beer was, what hops were in it. I know what the oh. grain bill was, but essentially I tried something completely different and I re replicated the same results in the competition this year. So um, I think it's just a matter of technique in what you do and where you add the hops more so than anything in the hops that you use. You don't want to use the kitchen sink, so I usually stick with three varieties. I always use Magnum, which is a bittering hop. Um, in a small amount and then, you know, 20 minutes, 30 minutes to flame out. Uh, I had a whole bunch throughout and that's pretty much the same technique I use all the time. So it's kind of like the, um, the, the greatest, the tribute song, tribute to the greatest song ever written. You just have tributes yes. to the greatest IPA. Yeah. Except the devil doesn't come and, you know, ridicule me while I'm brewing. I don't have to fight him or anything like that. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm sure either I or Amanda could come and, you know, put devil horns on and, you know, just... Yeah, we could be the little uh, angel and devil on your shoulder and drink your beer. That would work. <laughs> I got plenty. So, um, actually, you just reminded me of something. Um, totally forgot at the beginning to uh, kind of mention what we were drinking. Uh, not that it's any, at least mine's not... Or we're drinking, almost. Um, so for me, doing the... Speaking of IPAs, Lagunitas Hop Stupid. I'll be right back. Can't say it's one of my all-time favorite IPAs, but I think it's really good. I mean, they claim that it's 102 IBUs. I don't know. I've read some articles that say you can't taste any – average person can't taste anything over, like, 70. Yeah, I've always heard that, too, that it just doesn't matter when it gets that high. <laughs> yeah, so I, I don't know if it has that many. I mean, I like it. It's not too bad. It's about 8%. Amanda, what do you have tonight? 
Um, I'm being um, seasonal and drinking an Anderson Valley Fallhorn and pumpkin beer. Um, I am definitely a sucker for the style. It's the first year they did it, and it was really good. So I bought a case. Ooh. Well, yeah, no, you're almost out of season now. You're out of season by a week or two. It's it's out. We're out of August. Oh, are we doing um, – are we into winter beers already? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, I, I saw – speaking of that, I saw somebody post something that I thought was pretty interesting. They said the only style of beer so right now that you can't get out of season is the, the fresh hop harvest beers. So I thought that was kind of interesting. It seems to be – I mean, since they're, you know, tied to harvest. Well, you could. <laughs> be pretty foul though <laughs> yeah but i think it's interesting though they've done so much season creep with every other style that that's really the only it's the only beer left that you can't kind of cheat well um, pumpkins you shouldn't be able to cheat with either but they just stick them in cans or whatever and brew with them or it just or doesn't have any pumpkin yeah, whatsoever it's just spices <laughs> yes so uh what do you have andy um I'm kind of lame, but I love this beer so much. I have Dead Reckoning in oh, I the pint if glass. I wonder the glass, but oh, yeah. That's yeah. a good beer. In the bottle and beer. the glass. Um, it's probably one of the most underappreciated beers of this time of year. I feel like, you know, Harvest or Pumpkin or Oktoberfest mm-hmm. really outshines it. And I think it's, you know, Trogues, I think, is one of the best breweries, not only in Pennsylvania where we are, but in the entire world. So, um it kind of gets a backseat to Nugget Nectar, uh, especially. So I try to buy a case of it every year, and I just bought a case a couple weeks ago. It's already gone, so yeah, it's pretty they, good. they limited it to one run, I think, this year, unfortunately, to make room for yeah. one elf. Yeah, and they just got like four 300 barrel tanks yeah. for Mad Elf. So <laughs> I can certainly understand. I'm just glad, as long as they keep making it, I'm yeah. all right. I've threatened to kidnap the Trogues family uh, <laughs> if they stop brewing it. Uh, that doesn't go over very well at the brew pub, um, no? but. You know, I was surprised. But, you know, as long as they keep making it, I'm all right. Yeah, you know what? I I think I, I agree with you totally. That's one of the more missed beers of the season. Uh, I don't think I've had one yet this year. Oh, you might have missed it. <laughs> uh, it's it's getting on tap at places. So, okay. And, I mean, I see some that kind of, even though it's only brewed, because I think last year it was only brewed once as well, but some will linger into, you know, January, February, sometimes even the spring, depending upon where you go. I've yeah. been seeing it sit around, and I think it's even, you know, now that I'm drinking it, I kind of wish I let it sit for a little bit because I think it's opened up now, and I think it's a better beer than initially when I first drank it when it was maybe, you know, 10 days old. Interesting. Yeah. So speaking of glasses, using the uh, Dogfish Head IPA glass, Ooh. Yeah. I have a Sealand's Grove glass from middle of the state. Wow. Shaker pint, real classy. Keeping it real. That's, that's the way I keep it. Thanks. Thanks, Andy. You're welcome. Well, I'd like to think that you would expect the guy that has the beer website to have the the proper glass for the beer. I mean mine's around here somewhere. I could I could futz for it. So, anyway, sorry for the little distraction oh, there. Oh, um, But, um, okay, so, Andy, now that you kind of said, you know, the the recipe and, you know, uh, you kind of, you mentioned that you thought fermentation was the most important. Um, Without a doubt. So, uh, recipe-wise, 
I've been reading recently that uh, a lot of people that are kind of moving from, since we're having more people moving from home brewing to production brewing and starting new breweries, that uh, I've heard more than once them uh, mention that water recipes seem to be just as important as like a, a grain bill or uh, thing, you know, something like that. Uh, do you think that that's useful for a home brewer to learn? Do you think that's um, a little kind of out there? Um, I don't think it's out there. I think there's validity behind it, um, especially if you're brewing towards style. You know, historical guidelines. You know, German. You know, certain German and English beers, and you know, they have a certain water profile behind it. And if you don't have that same water profile, because you can add just the right amount of of what you need to make it that that it's not going to be accurate. In my personal preference, I think distilled water, which virtually has no minerals uh, whatsoever, is my way of brewing. Um, you know, I do add either calcium chloride, which is supposed to accent a multi beer. So if I'm doing something like a, a brown ale um, that I want to be malt forward, I'll add that into the mash just a little bit to give that profile. If I'm brewing an IPA, uh, something like gypsum, uh, which is calcium sulfate, will add to the hoppiness and flavor profile that you get there. So my personal philosophy is I don't like to mess with water too much, uh, but there is a water book coming out by uh, John Palmer and Colin Kaminsky. I think it comes out next month or November, if I'm not mistaken, which is kind of supposed to put that to bed because there's a lot of philosophy out there in terms of homebrewing. I used to use well water and I found that my score sheets when I would enter competition got dinged because it generally was hard water. And it certainly worked well with some beers, but others it didn't. And I find that I'm a lot more consistent with my brewing, the flavors that I get, and the scores that I get in competition because I use just distilled water. So that's my personal philosophy, but you know, anyone has a different opinion on it. Um, that's just what I find works for me personally. Okay, so you think that um, if someone say you know is an average uh, say my level home brewing where you know you've moved past uh, extract brewing and you're doing you know all grain and you're actually uh, caking the beer and, and you know taking it a little more seriously, uh, you think that paying attention to water would, is a good idea, or do you think that that energy would be better focused in other areas? I think it's definitely better focused in, in fermentation. I, I think that's where really you should devote all your time, energy, and thought into that process and what you can do to improve it. It's not to say that it should be an afterthought. It certainly shouldn't, uh, but it, for me, it's, it's definitely not at the forefront of my mind when I'm you know on brew day or I'm formulating a recipe. I just like to keep it simple because you know water is going to vary. If you have tap water seasons, it's going to vary. Unless you're getting a water report every quarter, um, you know, you're really, in, even still, not going to have the same thing. It's going to be a little bit different each time. And for me, in, when I approach brewing, I, I like to analyze it and try to, you know, take out as many variables to the process that I can. And I feel with distilled water, that affords me that opportunity and adding, you know, the amount of minerals that I want specifically, that leads me to, you know, know hey, if I add this specialty malt, that's the, you know, and increase it, that's what I'm going to get in my end product. It's not going to be something that varied in my water and maybe changed the way that I perceive that grain on my palate. So mm -hmm. it's, okay. it's kind of up in the air. Okay. So I guess going with the idea of uh, fermentation being the most important, what do you, um, 
what do you think an average home brewer could do during the actual, or better yet, is there anything you can do during the actual oh, yeah. brewing process to improve your chances of a better fermentation other than just kind of following the standard brewing, you know, process? Well, I mean, brewing-wise, you know, if, especially if you're extract, there's not a whole lot that you can do on that side um, because, you know, you can steep some grains and that can add some fermentability, uh, but basically you're dealing with a preset ingredient with a yeast and, you know, no matter what you do, as long as you have the right amount, it's it's going to end up the same for the most part. So there I don't think you can really do very much in the brewing process to change it. When you're all grain, you certainly can. Um, you know, the mash temperature that you do uh, is really going to have an impact on it. The type of grains that you use are really going to have an impact on how your fermentation, you know, plays out. If you use a yeast that really doesn't necessarily eat up as much and, and leave less residual sugar as what you want to do, then you might want to do something like a step mash uh, to, to, you know, convert more of those starches into more fermentable sugars than what you would get if you just mashed it at one single temperature. So all grain, you definitely have a lot that you can do on that side. Extract, you're really kind of stuck in a set uh, frame that you really can't work outside of, even if you try some other things. Okay. Um, okay, so you mentioned step mash. Um, can you just explain a little bit further what that means to the average? I mean, when I say average, I mean in the average all grain home brewer. Uh, what what can they do to do a step mash? So if you're brewing all grain, if you're kind of mashing in, you know, a cooler and it's one set, there's really, you can't do it. Um, with step mashing, you're increasing the temperature incrementally at certain time intervals to activate certain enzymes that extract certain things from the grain. So you would kind of have to have a direct fire system like I have and have the ability to raise that temperature. You could certainly add water if you were mashing in, you know, a bucket or cooler, but it's, you know, it's going to add more water. The enzymes are going to be further apart than they would be in a normal mash, and you're not going to get quite the same out of it. So, you know, if you're doing a, a malt that is not modified as much, like a like unmalted wheat or torrefied wheat, if you're making like a lambic or something to that effect, um, by doing lower mash uh, infusions and then raising that up to a standard, you can get more out of that that would provide more body, more fermentability than what you would get if you just did it at 154 degrees for an hour. Okay. So I guess then carrying that through, you know, past the boil to, um, you know, as soon as you're done with the boil, what, you know, does the, I, I know the kind of the rules say you need to cool that down as quick as possible. Um, does that amount of time that you cool it uh, have anything to do with helping your fermentability, or is that more just to uh, keep off flavors out? Keep off flavors out. Um, that's that's definitely the point of it. The faster that you cool it, um, the less susceptible it is to bacteria and other things like you know potentially you know wild yeast that might be in the air around where you're brewing to get into that product and take hold of it. Um, so the faster you cool it down the faster you can close that window to avoid that as a variable that might show up in your final product. So, I mean, it's not entirely essential. And if you're pretty solid with your cleaning and sanitation, you really don't experience it as a problem. Like when I brew a lager, for example, when I do my cooling, I can't even with a, a plate chiller, which cools it down very rapidly within 10 minutes from boiling, it goes to, you know, 60 degrees. But even then for a lager, it's not quick enough 
for my yeast to be pitched. So what I do is I let it sit overnight, and that's also to help some particulate settle out of that beer so I can rack it off because it interferes with that type of yeast. Um, so I let it sit, you know, for, you know, 12 hours essentially from brew day and nothing takes hold of it during that time frame because it cools so quickly. And I'm also solid with the cleaning and fermentation practices, uh, that I, that you use specifically. So it's certainly very important, but it's not a huge deal. Um, as long as you're trying as fast as you can, that's all you can do. And chances are you're going to end up with something that's pretty good. It might not be what you want, but it's more than likely going to be drinkable and something that you enjoy. And who knows, maybe you'll get an accidental sour. Yeah, you never know. It might be a good thing. You might make the best American wild ale that you could possibly imagine. Yeah, we know one or two local, or at least one local brewer that has uh, marketed an accidental sour, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, I feel like just even pretty much every beer they make. Wayne is doing him service. What was that Amanda? Yeah, that's. Uh, let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> um. Okay. So. All right. So we're done cooling. Um. When, you know, a We'll use me as an example. When I pitch my yeast, what is the the most important thing that I could do to make sure that I'm pitching it you know, as correctly as possible? Or what can I do past what you you know what I what a normal home brewer does to make uh, yeast pitching a little bit better? The the best thing you can do is actually before you even start brew day. Um, when you get your your vial of yeast or you get your smack pack. Um, by the time that's in your hands, you know, when it first left, you know, the Y yeast or White Labs or East Coast uh, Ale yeast, wherever it came from, chances are by the time that you have it, the cells that were there initially that they had counted to make sure you have just the right amount aren't really there. Um, you know, it degrades quite a bit over time. So even if you're a month away, that's still really fresh. It's still not going to be enough for what you want to do, especially if you're doing a beer that's, you know, above a specific gravity, um, you know, a higher style, if you're trying to do like an imperial style or something like that. So the biggest thing you can do is make a starter. Um, I do that every single time. And to make a starter, you know, you just basically take dry malt extracts and boil it for 15 minutes, cool it down, add the yeast, let that sit and agitate it as much as you possibly can to increase the amount of yeast that you had initially. That bigger pitch will give you a better product when you finish brewing and add that to the actual wort that you had made. Um, so that's the most important thing you can do. Um, you can go to a website, mrmulti.com. You can download an application that's a yeast calculator that you know you put in the parameters of the beer you're making, the amount that you're making, when the yeast was made, um, and it will basically tell you, you know, what type of procedure you use to make your starter. I personally use a stir plate, uh, but if a lot of people don't have that. Um, so if you don't have that, you can select that it's just a simple starter. And it will tell you exactly how many vials or packets that you need uh, to add to that starter, how much you need of that starter to end up with enough cells to appropriately ferment the beer that you're making. So that's the most important thing that you can do um, is before you even start is make that starter. Okay. Um, so you said you you recommend the starter about 24 hours before? Um, 48, I think, you know, 24, um, even less than that, really. Um, you're, you're still going to get the job done for the most part. Um, so, you know, if time is a constraint, that's going to work. Um, ideally, it's supposed to be 48 hours. At 48 hours, that's when you're going to maintain or, or achieve, rather, your optimum growth of that yeast. 
So that's what you would want to do ideally. Uh, but, you know, with time constraints and, you know, things going on, you might not always have that. And it's not a big deal if you can't. It's just important that you try if you can. Now, let's say I'm brewing a five-gallon batch and either something happens to my starter or I forget to do it um, or have to brew sooner. Uh, and we'll say, for instance, we're using the White Lab vials. Um, is there anything wrong with, say, getting three vials of white labs and pitching that into say a five gallon batch versus doing the starter or just a cost no, I, issue yeah it's a it's it's exactly exactly right it's a cost issue so i mean if you can afford to do that if you don't have the time if you want to spend six seven dollars per vial to do that i've done it uh, in pinches so that certainly works as well um it's just you know it, it costs more money and that's the bottom line so if you can afford that that will certainly work as well um, but, you know, if you have the time, you know, it's, you know, maybe making a starter either down to an hour or so uh, from boil to chill and all that good stuff. So, you know, if you can take an hour out, you know, make the starter. But if you don't, that would certainly work also. Okay. So we have the, we made the starter, we pitched the yeast. Um, what, you know, what, what would you think your next biggest thing you would say that the average homebrewer could do to improve their fermentability? Well, before you even pitch the yeast, if you can, you want to aerate or oxygenate the wort. So with oxygen, you have to have a, a diffusion stone, you know, from a medical tank or a, a welding tank that has pure oxygen and inject that in. That's a really, really important step. If you don't have that, what you can do is just after you collect your wort, you chill it, shake it and agitate it. Um, as the wort splashes around, it's going to exchange with the residual oxygen that's in the air. And add that back because when you boil, you boil off essentially all the oxygen that's in that liquid. Um, so when you aerate it, you introduce that back, and that's necessary for the yeast to replicate and grow as big as it can grow and prevent off flavors uh, from going into the beer as well. So you want to aerate if you can or oxygenate, and then also add, you know, um, some people even add just a little bit of olive oil because the olive oil would have the same effect as adding oxygen. And I know really? a couple of brewers that just add olive oil. They don't even add pure oxygen. Um, so that's something that you can do that's a really cheap kind of way around, you know, spending the money, you know, 60 bucks plus, you know, $10 for an oxygen tank uh, if it's disposable to add to that beer. You can just add a little bit of olive oil. So so what does the olive oil do? I mean, I understand what putting oxygen in does, but – I, for, I forget. I mean, what essentially when you add oxygen, what it does is there's a membrane within the cell wall of a yeast cell, and that membrane acts as a bouncer. It determines what gets in the cell, what gets out. So what you get for your sugars and the products that come out of it, and if it doesn't have oxygen, it can't make a very good decision, I guess, so to speak. Um, so, you know, natural flavors like acetaldehyde, which is green apple, or diacetyl, which is, you know, butter, uh, butter popcorn, butterscotch, that sort of thing. Those are the two biggest things because they naturally occur during fermentation. And the yeast will essentially spew that out. At the end of fermentation, it will reconsume that back in. So I think the olive oil has something to do with it. But without looking at the book, I can't really tell you for sure because I've, I've used it a couple times. It's worked um, when I've run out of oxygen. Uh, but I don't know the specific science behind that that makes it. But I would assume it has something to do with that uh, that membrane within the cell wall. Okay, so when you say you add that, so to like a five-gallon batch, how much would you add? Um, just a very, very minimal amount. Take a toothpick, take olive oil, 
you you know sanitize the toothpick uh, with star sand, um, and then you basically take the olive oil, dip that toothpick in, dip it in the wort, or you can just pour a couple of drops. Um, wow. That's more so if you're making a starter than anything, uh, but that's what you'd be looking at. Hmm. Oh wow, I that's I can't believe that tiny bit actually does anything. Huh. Yeah, just a very very minimal amount, and that's supposed to be sufficient. Oh wow. Um, okay, so. So once we oxygenate or uh, olive oil it, um, and I'm actually glad you mentioned that because uh, you told me before to make sure I agitate the wart, and I just used to yell, come at me, bro, at it. And <laughs> it 100% didn't work. Um, yeah. Ha. So, okay, so we yelled at the wart, added some oxygen, uh, pitched our yeast, what does a regular homebrewer need to do other than uh, – so basically the way – well, how about this? Uh, when I ferment, I pitch my yeast, I put my uh, put my blow valve in or put my uh, airlock in and just leave it sit for a while. Um, what can I do or what can the average person do above that to make that process a little bit more guaranteed? Um, there's not really much that you could do beyond that. Um, so, you know, once you leave it, really just you want to worry about temperature. That's the biggest thing to worry about. Um, okay. You want to try to keep it at a consistent temperature if you can, uh, which is hard to do. If you're, you know, brewing where we are, you know, during the summer, during the winter, it's going to vary. Temperature changes on a dime here. Um, so, you know, once you seal it up, you want to try to keep it at a consistent temperature. Um, if you can. And the easiest way to achieve that is basically you take your bucket, you take your carboy, you put it into basically it's called like a swamp cooler, uh, which is essentially just a big tub. You have some water in it. That water is going to help keep a consistent temperature. Um, and you can add ice to it, uh, stuff like that. If you want to cool it down more, that's the most effective way to control your temperature. Otherwise, you're kind of at the whim of nature and sometimes it'll be nice and make what you want. Other times, not so nice. Okay, that actually makes a lot of sense. So you just basically fill a vessel with water, put the carboy in the water, uh, not so much to cool it, but to keep the a more regular temperature. Exactly, yeah. So the, the water will help regulate that temperature and make it not fluctuate as much because fermentation, the, the metabolic activity of the yeast will cause it to rise naturally. So that water will kind of help buffer that rise in temperature and keep it more at ambient temperature than anything. Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, so there's kind of a debate I've seen between uh, doing going to secondary or just keeping in the initial carboy. Um, is it worth all the effort and possible contamination to go to a secondary or should you just leave it go? I hate secondary firm renders. Uh, I think they're the most unnecessary process that any brewer takes. I think there are certain applications where it makes sense. Um, you know, if you're doing an IPA, you're dry hopping it, that's going to help filter it. Um, you know, if you're doing a fruit beer, uh, that's going to help filter it. Um, there are certain applications where it makes sense, but for the most part, um, I think it puts your beer at more of a risk than anything. And there's certainly precautions that you can take to eliminate that possibility, but I don't even like to enter it. Um, I don't think it's really necessary in any beer that I brew uh, to do that, uh, even when I make IPAs. I avoid a secondary like the plague. Um, you're just, you know, when you're racking it over to another vessel, that vessel is completely filled with oxygen. 
that oxygen is going to react with the beer. It's going to cause the beer to steal quicker than what you would get normally. Um, so I, I just I really don't think it's necessary because the amount of oxygen that you're introducing and then also the fact that you're introducing it to another vessel that if you haven't cleaned or sanitized properly, there might be off flavors, uh, bacteria, wild yeast that exist in that. And you can certainly eliminate that for the most part. But uh, I just don't even see a point behind it because I don't think it makes a difference in the final product. OK, um, hey, you know what? I, I agree with that totally. And it's less work in cleaning. So I don't exactly. Agree with it. Yeah, keep that carboy for a fermenter. Don't use it as a secondary. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so so we're all done with um, the. We pitched correctly. We uh, made sure the temperature was controlled. Uh, did not go to a secondary. Uh, the the way that I know that the beer is basically done fermenting is by taking a gravity reading and comparing it to what final gravity I'm looking for, and that's when I know it's done fermenting. Um, is that the best way to know that we're done? Um. Not necessarily. I mean, it, it's certainly a very, very good measure. Um, but, you know, even if it might reach its uh, specific final gravity, um, it might be done fermenting, but the yeast still might be working uh, to reconsume those off flavors that it naturally produces. Uh, during fermentation. So for me personally, uh, I think the best way, and you know, if you look at a book, it's not going to say this, but just to look at it. I mean, if you can, if you're not using a, well, I mean, if you're using a bucket, just open it up real quick. Or if you're using a, a carboy, peer in. If you look there, if there is nothing on the top of that, it's completely clear and all the yeast is at the bottom, you're done. Um, the yeast has done its work. There's nothing in suspension at that point other than a very, very fine amount. Um, so for me, I don't even take gravity readings until I rack to the keg. And, you know, while I'm racking the keg, I'll put in a wine thief, draw that out, measure the gravity then is when, when I keg the beer. Because I just look at it and you can tell it's done. Um, that's personally what I use. I find that's the best, best method because even though it might be that gravity that you want, it still might have a day or two until it's really, truly done. Okay. So, uh, you know, going along the lines of kegging, um, Let's say we kegged it, um, and this is a problem I ran into with my last beer. It was the first beer I ever kegged, and I ran into nothing but problems with carbonating it correctly. I completely fouled it up. Um, what do you think the best thing to do for kegging that beer is? Um, I mean, for me, for kegging the beer, you know, in terms of like carbonation and yeah. how you go about that, not making sure it's cold, number one. Um, if it's not cold, the CO2 that you introduce to the beer is not going to be soluble. It's not going to take on to the beer, so you're not going to get any carbonation if it's at room temperature or cellar temperature for the most part, unless you add an absolute ton. Um, for me, the, the carbonation regimen that I use is more of a, a byproduct that I'm impatient with my brewing. Um, what I end up doing is I'll take it, make sure it's as cold as I can possibly get it, you know, freezing, it's alcohol, it's not going to freeze right at 32 degrees. So I'll take that, I'll hook it up to my CO2, have that at 30 PSI, turn it upside down and rock it for about, you know, depending upon my desired level of carbonation, anywhere from three to five minutes. Um, you know, it doesn't always turn out as I want it, but it still ends up being carbonated. And really that's the only thing I care about. Okay. No, I had heard that uh, you said so. You actually carbonate it and then, uh, you know, kind of jostle or move the keg around. Is that what you meant by that? Yeah, I basically, I take a 
basically a bottling bucket. I turn that bottling bucket upside down. I hook my keg to the CO2. I turn the keg upside down and put the edge of the keg off the edge of the bottling bucket bucket and rock it back and forth uh, during that three to five minute time frame. And that's all I do. Okay, so basically you're carbonated within five minutes then. Yeah, like for example, the beer that I'm doing for that wedding on Saturday, it's not even the kegs at this point. I'm going to keg it tomorrow morning. Um, and at that point, I'm going to carbonate it when it's kegged. Interesting. Um, I, I might have to, I might have to try that one next time I, for my next beer I'm keg. Cause yeah, I yeah, just, it works well. I was either way too undercarbonated or way overcarbonated and just spitting all foam out. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it is hard to get it dialed in. Um, and you know, depending upon the temperature that the beer's at, you know, especially if I'm just racking it from chilling it. Um, you know, sometimes I might not get the desired level that I want, but it's really easy to correct. Um, I, you know, regardless of what style, I prefer beers with higher carbonation because I think for the most part that is going to accent the aroma and the flavor more than an undercarbonated beer, even something like a mild that's not supposed to have much carbonation. My personal taste, I prefer a lot more than what the style would call for. Um, so, you know, it, it's easy to adjust if you don't have enough and you underdo it, but once you overdo it, you've overdone it. There's not a way to get it back. So there are other methods that you can do by putting a small amount on and letting that sit for weeks. But for me, I want to drink the beer right away. Yeah. I really don't want to wait weeks. Awesome. That, I mean, that honestly, the biggest thing I wanted to ask you was that because it's the one big thing that I've kind of messed up. Um, and I'd really like to keg again because um, bottling is just not for me. Pain in the butt. Yeah. It's terrible. It's, you know, we talked about uh, not doing secondary because you might possibly put off flavors in or have an infection or something. And you bottle, you're doing it to two cases of beer. Right. Exactly. Um, awesome. Um, so, honestly, I think that's about it. That's I learned way more today than I thought I would. Um, you know, what does that, that say about think, me? Yeah, right? <laughs> not, not that I didn't think you were smart, but you even in our other conversations, you definitely told me a little bit more here than you have before. Um, all you got to do is ask, man. I'm a... That's all I do is read beer books and listen to podcasts and be a giant nerd about fermentation. Well, speaking of beer books, something that I wanted to mention uh, before I let you go, because we're going on about an hour here, and I mean, people love us and everything, but, you know. Kind of a big deal. I'm, I'm a little long-winded. I apologize. Um, so, speaking of books, I wanted to mention uh, just today I signed up the next – uh, big guest for the podcast. Uh, it's going to be about the middle of October. I'll put the date up later. Uh, but we'll be talking with Randy Mosher from Ooh. Radical Brewing. Uh, he's coming out with a new Ooh. book. Um, we'll talk about that on the show. But he's going to come on and kind of talk about this book, talk about his next book, and do a little more, uh, little more homebrewing. Because I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Andy, but I think he knows a little more than us. A little more. Oh uh, yeah, that would be an understatement. Yeah. So, uh, so he's gonna be on a little bit later uh, next month, and hopefully, it should be a really good show. Hopefully, no technical difficulties. Um, uh, the next episode should definitely be Matt from Voodoo. Uh, talked to him a couple times. Uh, amazing, awesome guy. Has been involved in more. Yeah, Andy, you think you're long-winded? Where do we see this Matt episode, huh? Oh, oh my. <laughs> Might want to reserve a couple hours. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, part of that is is getting a little bit of extra talk in there, but he's just done so many things that it takes all that time to actually go over them all. So uh, I think it's a, as good of a place as any to wrap it up. Um, I've actually had two viewers the whole episode, so cheers to you viewers. Hey. Yeah. Good job, Andy. That's all you. Yeah. I don't oh, think we've carried two viewers genius. through... I don't think we've carried two viewers through a whole episode since Mm-mm. ever. Go probably ahead. getting hate mail as we speak. So, <laughs> cheers. So, if anyone listens to this later uh, or watched it and would love to tell Andy that he's awesome and amazing or that he doesn't know anything and he's oh. terrible, uh, Jagoff Brewer, at Jagoff Brewer on Twitter. Um, go yell at him. Go tell him he's an awesome guy. Uh, but other than that, uh, Andy, thanks a lot. Yeah, anything other you want to add about making someone a better home brewer? No. I mean, I think we pretty much covered all the basics. Um, and, you know, if you have questions, hit me up on Twitter. I'd be more than happy to ask. I'm certainly uh, no Randy Mosier, but um, I know a little bit, I think. I hope, at least. And I will be the first to say you definitely do, uh, even though I know how much you dislike pumpkin beers. Uh, and I've said this before, but your pumpkin beer is one of my all-time favorites. I think yeah. it was past. Yep. You get uh, to drink it at the wedding. There will be plenty of it. And I, think I will it's really drink... easy to say, Andy, that you are probably the best homebrew that I've had in Pittsburgh. So Yeah. You've had Keith's beer, that. right? What? You've had Keith Cost. Yes. Right? No, I and nothing against him, but uh, your stuff is always blowing yeah. me away. Yeah. <laughs> No, I mean, and I, got, I, I definitely have to say, you know, short of doing a side-by-side comparison, um, you know, I, I would go along with the best uh, worst case in the top three, um, and that's an extreme worst case. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, your pumpkin beer, easily one of my favorite all, all-time pumpkin beers. Um, I, I haven't had anything from you yet that I thought was less than great. So It's you know, usually because I dump it. <laughs> you would probably dump everything if you could. I would. If I could, yes, but it would just yeah. be a giant waste of time. Yep. <laughs> no, just just to let everyone know how privileged we are to have Andy today. Um, depending when you listen to this, today was the launch of iOS seven for Apple, and Andy does uh, you know, when he's not building his brewing empire, um, does a little bit of uh, help for a cell phone company, and has spent the better part of the day uh, talking with the less than technically competent people and getting them upgraded. So, sort of like me, but I don't have an Apple, so I'm good. Well, it's because you're smart. No <laughs> offense, Brian. <laughs> so, I'm, to be honest, after a day of dealing with that, I don't think I'd have wanted to talk to anyone for a couple of days. Well, there's plenty of beer after this podcast, so. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. So, yeah, I think that's about it. I think we're just about the hour mark. So, Andy, thank you very much. Thank uh, you for having me. Pleasure to have you on. I'll see you here this weekend. Yeah, Sounds see good. You soon. Yeah. All right. So, bye. Cheers, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Craft Beer Showdown podcast. Make sure to check out craftbeeracademy.com for more information and to give feedback on today's show. Don't forget to watch the next episode live on Google Plus Hangouts or YouTube going to craftbeeracademy.com slash live dash show.